The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So as you know, and as I mentioned just a few moments ago, many of us uh, participated in a community outreach event yesterday, and I'm grateful to report that it, as Frank was praying and as we've shared with some of you, it, in my estimation, it was a really good time for our larger efforts to connect and to, to reach our, our local community here in Fairburn. Now, the build-up to this event, it kind of ebbed and flowed, though, over the last few months. So the gentleman that was overseeing it, he's a local business owner, and uh, we were uh, put in touch with him, and he expressed an interest to do this, and this was a few months ago, and so that kind of got the conversation started. And with that, I gave kind of my primary attention on some Sunday evenings after we were finishing Fundamentals of the Faith, I, I kind of transitioned to taking an opportunity to work through what would be um, ultimately some materials for sharing the gospel. It's kind of refining that and, and testing it on our, on our children. Um, and so that's a, I know some things say it's not tested on animals. Well, we, we tested this on children, but it was gospel. It was, is the gospel clear? Are we communicating it clearly? Do we understand it? And so um, there was an element of that and walking through that. And it has the advantage of making sure we're, we're clear about gospel matters in-house. We don't operate off the presumption that, oh, they're a really nice kid. They grew up in the church. Well, they're in Christ. Well, not necessarily. And so we want to be gospel clear. And so I was taking those kind of opportunities. And then really the attention for the event somewhat got quiet because we had some gaps of time there. It would come up occasionally as a matter of prayer and general planning. And that was up until this last week or so. And then the, the attention ramped up very quickly. So I'm sure like uh, uh, many of you, uh, well, the, or others of you, I'm sure, are out there, have a, a countdown on your phone. So if you plug in a calendar event, you can watch for weeks, months, at a time where it counts down for you, days and hours, and you know, you can see events coming, and you can, um, you can watch the stress developing with like, I have to deadline, I'm, that deadline's coming, and, and that just, it's a delightful experience. And so I was watching that, and then we got to last week, and it was seven days, and six, and five, and four, it was closing in. And so I began giving rather copious amounts of time toward an event that would really only last two hours, and that was from start to finish, that was from really almost set up to breakdown and which we were going to only be a really small part, and the part shrank as we got closer, and that's fine. That's, that's part of the experience and part of the nature of these things. And it was an event that when preparing you for on Wednesday evening, so this last Wednesday in prayer meeting, shifted attention to, hey, let's, let's, let's make sure we're ready for this, and we're, we're, uh, we're taking the opportunity to, to focus and think about how will we talk if we have opportunities, how will we engage. And with that, I also tempered expectations because the fact is, that we, again, we were only a small part, and I'm a realist. At least in this area, I'm a realist, and um, I knew from much of my experience that even if we were the center of the event, that we would likely only see a very little response. Even if it was an event that we set up, and that we coordinated, and we called in all these folks, it, it, it would probably be a very small response. And that's okay. That's the nature of, you know, engaging a community. It's, it's hard, and you think about uh, if somebody comes around to your door and they say, oh, this is a really great event. We're going to give you this stuff and it's going to be fun. And yeah, and then you're going to come, yeah. And then it comes, you're like, well, I don't know. I don't really watch football, but maybe I will today. Um, you know, things happen. That's okay. That's, that's the nature of life and engaging others in a broader community. And I was and I'm completely content with that as we could still fulfill our aim. And our aim was that of being good neighbors and gospel ambassadors. That was our aim. That was our uh, our. our uh, mission coming into this is that these are two objectives. We're going to be good neighbors and gospel ambassadors. Now, I framed good neighbors, at least Wednesday, rather broadly when I last spoke of this to you, but perhaps we should think about that more carefully. And, and I did refine that as we got to yesterday, uh, narrowing focus and clarity on what a good neighbor is. And because it's really important. Uh, that's part of what we were doing. It's a big part of what we're doing. So perhaps we should remind ourselves the nature of one who is a good neighbor. And I know many, if not most of you, uh, maybe know where I'm leading us here because on May 29th, 2022, and I'm sure you document those kind of things as well, I preached a message titled, Jew, Jesus, and a Call to Mercy. And it was a reflection or a drawback connecting Jew to Luke 10, 25 to 37. What the connection was, I'm sure was clear at the time right now. I, I don't know that I could recall for you, but it took us to a well-known passage. And we walked through something very important that day. We walked through Jesus giving a story in response to a question that must be answered. 
That is, it must be answered if we're going to walk in obedience to the Lord and his commands, because it was the question of who is my neighbor? And if even, even if you were not present that Sunday um, or do not recall the message, even if you were here, it was a long time ago, and there's a lot of things that have been said in the meantime, um, and you don't recall necessarily that, you're likely still familiar with Jesus' story in that passage, a story popularly referenced to as Good Samaritan. And so we're familiar with that well-worn story. Even, you know, even that, that parable is so ingrained in general culture. There's, there's even uh, recognition that if there's an accident and you go to help somebody and it doesn't go well, you're not always, but often covered under what's considered the Good Samaritan Act. Like you acted in good faith. You went out of your way to show mercy towards someone. And so it's, it's really ingrained in our culture even broadly. So it's a story that when Jesus finished sharing it, finally answered the question posed to him. But he answered it like a good rabbi with a question. And so maybe that would frustrate you, but it was the way that, uh, again, it was common for rabbis and maybe common for some of us. So he answers the question with a question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And we know that the story, it hit its mark. It accomplished its objective. Even though he asked a question, he, he did answer it because the man replied to Jesus in the proper sense, the one who showed mercy toward him. That was who was a good neighbor. That was who was just even neighbor, just generally. Who was his neighbor? The one who showed mercy. To which Jesus responded, go and do the same. That's Luke 10, 37. And after we walked through this parable together, I provided the following statement of application for you. Who is my neighbor? Well, your neighbor is someone in your sphere of experience or influence to whom you can show love, particularly through expressing compassionate mercy, which is a love that is sacrificially given without a view of return from the recipient. So, in your praying, and, uh, and you're participating in the event yesterday, and there, so that when I say participating, I don't want to say, well, there was prayer and there's participation. That's, it's, it's, a less, it's, it's a redundant. When you pray, you participate. So by participate, I meant physical presence. So in your praying for and participating in the event yesterday, you were supporting Grace Bible Church and being a good neighbor. So you were supporting us being a good neighbor, a good neighbor who was showing love without a view to something in return, a good neighbor who was expressing compassionate mercy through kind engagements, through snacks, even a few beach balls that finally made it out of my car, and most importantly, by fostering and supporting the sharing of the gospel, which we tried to lead, uh, get it in there in various opportunities. And some of your engagements, I was grateful to hear that, and some of the things that were handed out, that was supporting the sharing of the gospel, which is, again, God's mercy for a lost people. So that's clearly an expression of mercy. And I recognize that whether your participation was prayer this last week, we highlighted it for a missions moment, and we've mentioned it at various times, or whether it was actually coming in person, especially if you're coming in person, I know, that, okay, that cost you something. It did, it cost you something. There wasn't a charge. There wasn't someone standing at the, the, the complex, and that's why I had some of you park off to the other place, like I would beat the system. No, it, it wasn't that, but it cost you your time, right? It, you had to get there. You had to be there, so it cost you your time. It cost you energy. There was some spending of yourself. It cost you maybe some resources if you um, were giving in some fashion or another. And it is such as the nature of being others-oriented, right? It's, it's costly. That's, that's the nature of being others-oriented. It's always going to cost you something. And so while a simple event, it was also an exercise in a humble, others-oriented unity of mind exercised through service by way of kindness and gospel witness. A simple event that put some legs to what we've been working through in Philippians. So we'll talk about application. And this section has plenty of application, but I want you to also see that sometimes application looks like that. Others-oriented service, a, a unity of mind. We didn't come there and I start saying, well, I'm here on behalf of Grace Bible Church and I'm going to pray. And then somebody stands up and be like, well, it's not what I would have said. Or, eh, this guy, we're just waiting on the next one. Or, can you believe the way this guy prays in public? I couldn't even hear him with a bullhorn. There was, what was there? Well, there was a unity of mind, right? A humble, others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord. And so you're exercising that, even in a somewhat common and simple experience. Now, while we were serving in this event, we, we also worked to make some resources available and those present were wearing sticker name tags that I printed for us, and 
I don't know about your experience, but mine was mine liked to stick to anything but me. So if, <laughs> if something touched me, which that doesn't happen very often, but a box or something, it's on the box. Now the box is David, and it's it's fine. Um, but nevertheless, uh, created some little name tags, and uh, you you get what you get when I'm the, the name tag guy. And it was ones that had Grace Bible Church across the top because I didn't want just hello, my name is. We figure that much out when it says your name. I wanted Grace Bible Church and then have your name. So there was an engagement, a, a reciprocating engagement. And in spite of my initial efforts with kind of putting that on there, I also want to put the logo on it because everything should have the logo on it. But it just wouldn't print well enough to have the logo for a name. So we just had to forego that. But our logo was dutifully present on business cards, which are available on the back wall if you're interested, and other places. And that was important to me because it helps people recognize and remember us. They see, that, okay, the little Bible coming out of the tree on the side of the road. Okay, that, that's a Grace Bible Church. So it helps people recognize and remember us, but it also communicates something too. It communicates that we, are, that we purpose as a church, a local church fellowship, to be rooted in the scriptures and growing in grace. That that's part of our identity. That, that's not part of our identity. That is our identity, to be rooted in the scriptures and growing in grace. And perhaps hearing that, now you're remembering another message. You're going through that catalog. You're, you're, you're thinking about your countdown calendar. You're thinking about, okay, when was this message? Wait, wait, let me check my internal calendar here. Oh, yeah, January 9th, 2022. And you're thinking about, yeah, that's when David was preaching in Psalm 1 and shared with, with us how I view our logo closely with that passage, noting the image that the passage paints for us, that of deep roots of a firm and fruitful tree flourishing as it anchors itself and drinks deeply from God's word. And then according to that, I said, well, let's be like that. Let's be like a Psalm 1 man, a Psalm 1 woman, having our roots deeply driven into God's word, that we would flourish and we would stand strong. And part of Psalm 1, especially the part I've highlighted there for you, expresses, what does that Psalm 1 man do? Well, he delights in the law of Yahweh. And as such, as a reflection or part of his delighting, he, he does what? He meditates, he muses, he thinks on God's word day and night. And that's the kind of people we ought to be like, right? We want to be people that are constantly giving our thoughts and our attention. If they drift, if they wonder, or if we're intentionally guiding, that we want to be scripture-centered. It doesn't mean we can't and somebody comes up to you, oh, what are you thinking about? And you just rattle off text. That would be great. That's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean you can't have some broad range of opinions and thoughts and interests in life, but you're governed and anchored in and by the scriptures. So people who, again, are meditating, musing, and thinking on God's word day and night. And so, yes, of course, that's the kind of people we ought to be like. But we have to understand something. We have to understand that meditating, musing, and thinking do not begin and end in the privacy of a study, an office, a bedroom, a kitchen table, wherever you uh, primarily maybe give your attention to the reading and studying the meditation on the scriptures. No, that, that's not the case. That's not the be-all, end-all. That, that's valuable. It's a precious, even, and some say, perhaps you could say even sacred experience in sacred places. And if, but that's not the beginning and end of the process of meditating, thinking, musing on God's word. And if we're not clear on that, well, then Paul has come to our aid as he spoke of thinking beyond such parameters. And we've observed such throughout our engagement from Philippians, going all the way back to our introducing the book and drawing out major themes, one of which was thinking. It, was a, it is. It's one of the central primary themes, which intimately complements the two other dominating themes of the book, which I could quiz you, but I'll spare you that, joy and unity. Joy and unity. So you have thinking, joy, unity. Those, those are your major points of emphasis. If we're, if we're just going off of what he speaks of most clearly, thematically, and by word count and otherwise, that's clearly what he's focusing on, thinking, joy, unity. And as you may remember, all three of those are intimately united in our passage's first command. It has two commands, but the first of the two, chapter 2, verse 2, within our passage, where do you have? You have fulfill my joy that you think the same way. So joy, think, same way. So you have the, the joy emphasis, the thinking emphasis, that unity emphasis. And this particular term for thinking or, or to think or thinking is present in some 20 passages throughout the New Testament. And 
85% of those are in Paul's letters, and the, the one occurrence in Acts is directly tied to Paul at the, end, at the conclusion of Acts. How do you think about these things, Paul? And the other two references come in the Gospels, and they're actually synoptic um, accounts, so really probably we could say one in the Gospels, even though it's two times there. So this particular word for think or mindset, it's very Pauline. It's very much tied to Paul, and he makes wonderful use of it. Notably in Philippians, where he uses the, uh, the term ten times in seven verses, spanning each chapter of the book. And so we see it in Philippians 1.7. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both of my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers of me in this grace. We see it in Philippians 2.2. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Again, that was our command that we've already addressed. The next command that we're going to be working through, Philippians 2.5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then we advance to chapter 3, verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. Philippians 3.18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even crying, as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, and glory is in their shame, who set their thoughts on earthly things. Philippians 4.2, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. And finally, Philippians 4.10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. So clearly, as we've established, thinking or mindset is an important element of this book. And of the two commands in our passage, which I would argue constitutes the heart of the book, I would say 2, 1 through 11 is, is really kind of the heart of Philippians. Uh, may not necessarily be the center for chapter book, but it is very much the heart of the book. You have one element that explicitly ties those two commands. That has, that, so the heart of the book, two commands, and what's the one element that ties both of those commands together and that thematically governs the passage? Thinking. Thinking. So verse 2. Think with a humble, unified, others-oriented disposition. Verse 5. Think with a humble, unified, others-oriented disposition like Christ. So they're complementary commands, the one really building and filling out the other. Now, come back to what I stated about Paul's use of thinking that it is not confined to our place of reading, to our place of study, place of devotions, or however we um, engage the scripture, whatever approach that you take to, to your discipline of studying the scriptures. It doesn't, it's not confined to that. That's not the, the limit of the scope of our thinking in terms of our engagement with the scriptures. Rather, it has accompanying actions as well, notably ones that express a humble, others-oriented unity of mind and that are filled out for us in verses 2 through 4, where we've been giving our attention the last few weeks and where we will finish today. So again, the range of, of, of the scope of what is, what is it like to think, what's not just sitting there looking at words. Those words demand action. Thinking demands action. And as we will see today, action is squeezed between the two commands in our passage. Now, come back to what, I, um, what constitutes a good neighbor, just, just for a moment. Good neighbor does what? They show mercy, right? We've, we've tried to drive that, make that clear. They show mercy. And I would argue an effective way that they do so is by way of fostering and expressing the kind of thinking that we're called to in our passages to commands. I think that would be part of an expression of mercy, that you walk in the commands that we've been given. Why would you say that? Well, because it's having a humble, others-oriented unity within the body. That makes for good neighbors. You want to be a good neighbor? Well, you heed the two thinking commands that reside in the middle or the heart of the book because they're going to press you toward a humble, others-oriented, unified disposition of mind, as a body, as a people. That makes you good neighbors and good gospel ambassadors, which are really maybe one and the same, right? And so while yesterday was simple, maybe too simple for some, and, and perhaps appeared to be a, a lot of buildup for not a lot of return, know this, that like Paul, as he called the Philippians uh, to, to, to share, to fulfill his joy, 
you also participated in fulfilling my joy in that experience. So you might think, well, that was nice that I planned his birthday around a community event. No, that's not what we're getting at. Paul's ambition, fulfill my joy. This is for your benefit. This is for your growth and grace and for your faithfulness and service. Well, in a like way, I'd say it was fulfilling my joy, and you were participating in that. But is that a stretch? Are we like, wow, you just, you're trying to tie that in too much. Let's just stick with Philippians. Well, Philippians demands legs and feet, right? So we're putting legs and feet to it. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Um, maybe, a, maybe it was at a long reach to see what we've been working through applied. No, I, I think it directly connects. Let me explain why. Because it wasn't until Friday when I, I realized something, which is probably not a big surprise um, that I come to conclusions later than others. But I realized, why am I spending so much time on this community outreach event and wanted to see it go so well? Because again, I... My, temp- uh, my expectations were tempered. I was aware, and I was watching the agenda shrink and change and whatnot. None of that's the nature of how these things go. So and I was trying to think, like, why, why is that such a big emphasis for me, even knowing that it was a very simple event? And I realized that over the last four years, from January 2020 all the way through the present, not every week, and there's been substantial gaps at different times, but over the period of four years, I have walked miles and miles in Fairburn. I didn't realize it was nine blocks one way, which is no, I think it's longer. But nevertheless, the, the mayor, who I was talking to for a little bit yesterday, he's like, yeah, from here to here, it's nine blocks. And I thought, boy, I've walked those nine blocks so many times, literally back and forth at a given day. And I've walked miles and miles in Fairburn, spent days and days trying to engage strangers in the city and hoping for gospel opportunities hoping that someone would just see this guy and finally just be like, what is it? And that happened once. Like a, a guy uh, down at the college actually wanted to know if I needed help. <laughs> so um, I don't know. Do people pace up and down a city because they need help? I don't know. But nevertheless, that was kind of him. Um, so I was just hoping to connect to someone to, uh, for gospel opportunities, hoping to connect to someone to, to share with them about this precious local fellowship. And that whole time, all those efforts, I've had only a handful of people who were ever willing to engage me. And while those were good opportunities, it would appear that little has ever come of them. Maybe things that are intangible. Maybe they, they thought about things of the Lord. Maybe they went and found somewhere else to, to serve. Maybe somebody else had more opportunity. I don't know. But the intangible side was what I experienced. But in contrast to that, in a simple moment, a gathering for which we were of little concern to most present, Several persons were engaged. Not, I'm not going to say, well, it was lots and lots. Of, it, it wasn't lots and lots, but it was a, it's a good number of people. It's a number of uh, firefighters. It's a number of local residents, city officials, few vendors, few kids, few older folks. What happened? They, they were there, and they, they were engaged. They weren't going to find. I could have walked through that apartment complex ten times. But thankfully, I saw the sign that you're not soliciting, and I probably would be soliciting, considering I'm walking around trying to talk to people and I carry a bag with information in it. So, it wasn't going to happen somewhere else. And so, it did in that context, in which they were introduced to a small local church fellowship that wants to be a good neighbor to them. And while not going as necessarily I'd planned, they at least got what I would call gospel flares sent their way. Moments of truth and short statements, prayers and personal engagements being, you can think of it, the gospel kind of shot into the dark sky. It lit the whole sky up for just a moment. Those little short conversations, little short engagements and opportunities to pray and, and engage. And among those gospel flares, some of them heard two different pastors pray for them. Um, I opened in prayer, Pastor Frank closed in prayer, and what they heard were men who have stood before you week after week and encouraged you to pray for our local community who have modeled it in our own prayers, and now they got to hear that. They got to hear that firsthand. So if you participated by way of prayer and or your presence yesterday, then know that you also, again, were, you shared and fulfilling my joy in that matter. And I hope that encourages you, and I hope that you're perhaps a little more invigorated in your thoughts about praying and engaging in this community. And I hope that perhaps having a more personal affirmation of fulfilling a pastor's joy gives you a better glimpse into the command that's been informing our engagement in Philippians these last few weeks now. Because it was a very personal command. This was very personal to me. Again, I'm, I'm walking, wearing out shoes and, and something else and getting my step count in hoping for opportunity, and then finally got it in a, you know, simple context. And in that sense, I could say it fulfilled my joy. It's very personal. But here we have a very personal command by Paul, right? And he saw it was for their good and for their joy. 
And with this command, we have an apostle who is very much an extension of the Philippians, local shepherds, and he's commanding them, again, something quite intimate to his heart, fulfill my joy. And that's the nature of love, isn't it? It's others-oriented. And even in expressing this command, Paul was looking beyond himself. So we could say, well, they were expressing love toward him because they were fulfilling his joy, but really his joy was with a view to them. And so we have this dual others-oriented dynamic where Paul was looking beyond himself into their own progress in joy in the faith, and then even beyond that to Christ's own joy in his body, thinking with a humble others-oriented unity of mind. And so Paul could say, fulfill my joy, and in that... And this is for your benefit, and it's a reflection of Christ's joy for his local manifestation of his body. Because if you're fulfilling Paul's joy here, what are you doing? Again, others-oriented, a humble others-oriented unity of mind. That does honor the Lord. That does, I would argue, bring him joy. Now, I know that was a long build-up for only now coming to the time that we'll read our, our uh, full text together. But as I hope is increasingly clear, the, the elements of this portion of the text are not especially complicated, at least not in their apprehension, but they are clearly challenging in their application because they plainly, again, they cost us something, namely the giving of ourselves and the elevating of others. And you might think it's so much easier just to, I'd rather... Um, people don't write checks anymore, I guess. Some folks do. But I'd rather write a check, or I'd rather just give somebody something. Because this cost is, is more demanding. Again, it's costing us ourselves and the elevating of others. And so I'm leaning heavily on exhortation throughout this time, and not because of particular persons or problems in mind. You know, pastors are occasionally... Um, I don't want to say guilty, but that's probably the best word. So guilty of the, there's something within the church and you're like, ooh, I know what's going on. You don't have to have names. Uh, eventually, you can probably figure it out. They just keep talking. You're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a problem in the church. Ooh, didn't realize that. It's, it can almost become, you know, people give prayer requests sometimes, and it's almost like that's the, the gossip channel um, with, oh, really? That was happening? Well, it's supposed to be a prayer request. And sometimes pastors will, will preach and teach through a passage or not a passage, and they'll just kind of wax eloquent about something and, and be like, oh, who's he talking about? That's not what I have in view here. It's not a, well, I have particular persons or problems in mind, and that's why I'm leaning a little bit heavier on exhortation than I usually would. At least I'm not thinking about persons or problems in the way that might be commonly thought. Because to be honest, I do have persons and problems in mind pastorally. I would argue that I have you all in mind. Every one of you and us as a unit. And I have problems in mind too. Because a humble, others-oriented unity of mind is hard to secure and quite difficult to maintain. And so I have us in view. It's not that, oh, well, I didn't want to have to do this, but Andre, get in line. I do have to do that. I didn't want to do it publicly. But, um, no, it's not that. It's a every one of you. And then us as a unit. Because, again, this is hard to secure. It's very easy to work through. It's hard to secure. And then once we have it, it's, it's like, you know, somebody that's an ambitious fisherman that's woefully unprepared. They get down the line, they're like, and then you can see in their eyes, like, what do I do now? Now you're in for a fight. You got the big fish. Well, you hooked it, but you ain't got it yet. It's difficult, difficult to maintain. And it's such with, the, it's with such in view that when I was contacted by a friend this last week, a, a friend that I had pastored with, um, he asked, how, how are things going? Just He's one of the, the people in life that will every few months, six months, maybe once or twice a year, just kind of drop in. How, how are things going? And how can I pray for you? And gives updates on um, things in his own life and experience and family and whatnot. And so, how are, how are things going? Well, I was able to sincerely report to him two things. First, that things are going really well, specifically in view of the church, that I honestly, I can't think of a time in my life when I've been more wholly satisfied with the church. And I, I extend that beyond Grace Bible Church. And I've been really fortunate. I've been part of some good churches along the way. But I could say this is the most satisfying experience, this, this moment in life. And it's, we're well past the romance period, y'all, or the, the, the honeymoon period, whatever. This is, we've been in the, we've been in, we've been together long enough now. We're past that. 
Rosy glasses are gone. And second, I also could report that I daily live with both fears and concerns for the church. And that I pray the Lord would keep us. And that's not, those aren't, they aren't in contrast when they're really complementary of one another. So satisfying, so joyful, but genuinely living with fears and concerns for the church. And, and Lord, keep us. And so I'm leaning in heavily here on exhortation. Because what the text is expressing here is as hands and feet as it gets. But I'm also leaning heavy on exhortation because of the development of the text, um, a matter that, again, I'll return to after we read our text together. And as we turn our attention more directly to our passage, I want to engage it like we did last week. I, I prepared for that last week, and I thought that's, that's helpful. And so I want you to think about you're doing well. We can always do better. And but by the grace of God, are we going to make it? So have that in mind. And now let's engage Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then I'm going to highlight a few structure things as to further press why I'm so heavy on exhortation this time or these last few weeks. And again, as I, as I read verses 1 through 11, as I mentioned, I want to think about it. I want you to think about some things as we read exactly like we did last week. I want you to think about first how verse 1 prepared us for verse 2. It didn't just give us a lot of uh, things that, well, isn't that nice? Okay, where's the command? Okay, there we go. First one, kind of a nice little primer, like a long introduction. No, I want you to think about how verse 1 prepared us for verse 2. Then think about how verse 2 and its command, it worked itself out and it necessarily set us up for being further fleshed out in verses 3 and 4. And so we have that command, and we have the immediate application that it has, and then it kind of spills out into further application. So I want you to think about that as we read 2, 3, 4. And while we continue reading, let the weight of those expectations really press on you because they're very hard. They're very challenging, very simple to understand, but they're very hard. And in the fleeting moment that passes as we finish reading verse 4 and are coming to verse 5, ask yourself, how? He's given very clear commands and very clear expectations and application, but how? How are we going to do that? Well, how ought this to look and be exercised in my life? And then feel the overwhelming clarity and weight and mingling of grief and gratitude that comes when considering the profundity of the incarnation. Because that's what we're going to get with verse 5 and following is that, you, you know, I spent probably, I was telling Denise, 90, probably about 90% of my time of my uh, study and attention and work in the prep side of Philippians this week in verses 5 through 8. I was ambitious. I thought we might actually get there, much less finish it. And that's, it's got a lot of beauties and complexities to it and a lot of demands to it. And you can study that all you want, but you're going to walk away and someone's like, explain the incarnation to me. Okay, the creator engaged his creations. Eternity stepped into time. He who was rich became poor. That you, you're going to get pieces of it, but you're just not going to satisfy. There's no, there's no satisfying that itch. There's no fulfilling the 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 complexities of articulate. You don't. We don't get it. We get enough to be redemptive and to provoke us to worship. And the more we get, the more more provoked to worship. But ultimately, the the Son of God taking on flesh. We've gotten very comfortable with that concept. But you explain that. I can't, then I want you to think about that. I want that to weigh on you. Because with that, Paul's going to say how he must think like a redeemer who chose to humble himself in love for those whom he would call to himself, having a view to their good, having a view to our good over his own. Again, you think about that. You, you figure that one out. And while we read through verses 5 through 8, and your mind is struggling to simultaneously keep up and comprehend, find the Find the proper reprieve and overwhelmingly worshipful joy that's introduced in verses 9 through 11 because he's going to be brought so low by the time you get to verse 8. Humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And you're as low as we get. You know, it was, it was humbling for, for the Son of God to, to engage creation as he did, to, 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 be, uh, to take on humanity, to take on, uh, to become the, the, the God-man. That was humbling up, but then to be humbled all the way to the point of crucifixion is that would be humbling for the sorriest of us. So we have the Son of Man. So you're you're stuck low there, 
And then you get to verse 9. And as you hear and read this final portion, you you have the exaltation of Christ. And and you have this many references uh, of maybe perhaps flooding into your own mind. And Peter directs us this way. And Paul directs us this way to... You know what? That what you saw with Christ, the humbling and then the exaltation, well, it's a model that we also will see all throughout the scriptures that the Lord elevates and, and redeems and, and again, um, helps the humble, helps the lowly. And as, again, First Peter kind of thematically we, we saw develop that present suffering yields to future glory. And certainly Christ was the preeminent example of that as well. So that's how I hope you will read this text again today. So we're going to read it together, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll make small pauses at those transition points, but we're going to just keep reading. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, By being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, pause. Not, ever, not necessarily even at a sentence break. I recognize that because I want you to connect, connect commands, actions, expectations, relationships. But that being said, we've, we've established and again affirmed that this text has two commands. So maybe, maybe that was disrupted by the pauses. I hope not. I was trying to help you engage as we just talked about. But it has two commands that I would argue were at the, 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 the center or heart of this book. So we have the heart of this book, the centering of the book, chapter 2, 1 through 11. And in that section, you have two governing commands. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way and have this way of thinking yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. We've talked about those. We've walked through them a number of times now. And thinking on this matter and thinking on this and the overall development of the text, I realize there's a centering in these commands application in verses 2 through 4. Uh, that we have implicitly framed over the last few weeks, but that I want to draw out more plainly for you now. So again, in verses 2 and 5, what do we have? Two complementary commands, two complementary calls to a proper pattern of thinking. There are different commands, but if you just wanted to, to condense them down to what are they both saying, what's a proper view of thinking, it's how the Lord would have us think. And between these two commands, these complementary parallel commands, You have application. It's a shared application. The substance of what it's like to think the same way and to have the same way of thinking as was in Christ Jesus. So again, to fulfill the two commands, to fulfill my joy that you think the same way and have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, we must think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so again, parallel commands, one point of application, and they share, and it's sandwiched between them, how ought you to think exactly as we just articulated there? So we could argue that Paul's functionally given, the, again, in some ways, the same command twice, but the second time with more force and detail in its second iteration, but, with a new, uh, but without a new application. So same, same like command, second time, more force, more precise, same application. And this is, where we're, this is why we're giving this portion of the text a special measure of attention. It's the exercising or fleshing out of the two commands that come in the heart of this letter. So if this is the heart of the letter and the two commands that are going to govern it and they have one shared point of application, 
I think we're in safe territory to say, drill down and make sure we get this. Well, it's really simple. Right. It is simple. I think any of our kids, you could recite it to them a few times, and they could say, okay, I can put it in my own words, and this is how you ought to do things. But then you look at the, not the youngest of us, but the oldest of us who have walked in Christ the longest, and you say, well, okay, it was simply articulated, now simply act on it. And they would be like, bah, it's, it's harder than that. Go back to the child if you want a simple articulation. Come back to me maybe in a few more years if you want best application, because it's hard. It's really hard. Now, two weeks ago, we worked through the first part, think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. And we noted the clear emphasis on unity that was being cultivated. So same love, united in spirit, and thinking on one purpose. Then last week, we worked hard in cultivating the others-oriented nature of the passage and focused on doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory while also keeping a clear, emphatic view to these elements that followed, with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. However, in this we gave our, again, our focused attention last week on the prohibitions regarding selfish ambition and vainglory. That's where we primarily focused. Now, it bled over to the other parts, but that was our primary focus. So now we're going to return and finish with the last push through the positive elements and prepare ourselves for the second command and its exemplary example provided in Christ. So, in our transitioning to these final elements, uh, I think Charles Erdman, I think he provided a, a helpful observation for us. He states, quote, Humility is the very opposite of pride and self-glory. It indicates not merely modesty, but self-forgetfulness, or such a low view of self as enables one to form rightful view of others, to, make, to take an interest in the welfare of others, to lose self in the service of others. Do you understand what he's expressing here? I thought it was really well stated. Uh, I don't quote just for filling out um, statements and slides. I think he articulated something that, oh, I wish I'd thought of it that way. I think he's very helpful because what he's expressing is it's the same sentiment that we've been pressing in our prior engagements with these matters. It's having a right view of God, a right view of self, and a right view of others. That's how we get to where we have to be. And you can think of it as being on the, the right side of the mirrored glass in the back of the room. So I know it's to your back. I see it. It's, I can see the TV in it. I can see the back of like five people's heads. That mirrored glass, and you know it's there. It's not some secret like, what's that back there? It's, it's not so you can make sure everything's buttoned up and ready for the day. That mirrored glass back there, I would just think about it for a moment. Because there's a room on the other side, right? And it's not a mirror in a mirror. So if you're looking at it from this side, then you have only the reflection of yourself. And as such, you may well have your attention consumed with your appearance and preferences. And that's when you catch it, you're like, nobody told me it looked like that. We all thought it, but we just thought, bless their heart, it's just what it is. And so you're looking at it from this side, and you're just thinking about yourself. It's just about you. However, if you step into the other room and look into that same glass, you might see a tint of yourself because of just the natural reflection of glass, but you are looking through yourself and into this room full of other people. And your attention is directed toward them. And that's what a proper humility and evaluation of others does for us. It lets us see through or past ourselves and have our attention, our interest, our concerns, and our joys centered on others. And this is exactly how Paul patterned his own ministry within the church, with a humility of mind, and such was a clear element of his testimony in giving his parting charges to the Ephesian elders. A well-known passage in Acts 20 you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Acts 20, 18 and 19. So we have humility, tears, and trials. Humility, tears, and trials. Not the descriptions that will probably make for a bestseller on contemporary leadership. I don't know anybody that would write their biography or, auto, or their own autobiography or biography on leadership and say, yes, how would I describe my success? Well, I would use three words, humility, tears, and trials. Probably not going to happen. 
And what's tragic is that's not only not, not likely to happen in contemporary leadership, but what's even more tragic is it's not often even the context of the church. How would you describe your success in leadership? Humility, tears, and trials. No, no way. But that's how it ought to be. Such was the nature and experience of Paul, and such was not only the nature and experience of Paul, but also who? So we expressed last week the man of no reputation, the one by whom and through whom are all things and all things were created and whom all things are held together, the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead who humbled himself in righteous and redemptive obedience. If he was described, how was your ministry? How would you describe it as faithfulness? Well, humility, tears, and trials. And we think about that and we think about the fact that it's in view of that that we're being pressed to unity. And we realize that unity is fragile. It's so fragile, it's so delicate. And a unity of mind is especially delicate. And so what do you do with such things? How do you care for the fragile, for the delicate? Well, I would say you carefully insulate it. I think that's, the, I think that's a wise thing to do. So um, forgive me, Marie, but I'm gonna, you're, you've made the cut this week for, um, artificial fake illustrations. So the real part is the Howards are soon moving across the border. Um, even though it's a relatively short distance, um, the nature of moving can be dangerous for things that are fragile. And if you're very mindful of that right now, if things matter, it's probably not like, eh, whatever. There's probably a carefulness to it. And so you can imagine, and we'd have to imagine this, maybe this, I, I don't know this to be true, but you can imagine maybe Marie has a, a precious heirloom, perhaps a, a vase that was gifted to her from her all the way back through the, the, the family line, her, her great-grandmother has passed this along because her father gave it to her on her wedding day, and it's just been passed down to each of the oldest daughters in the family on their wedding day for generations. You think that would be valuable? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You think a, a vase of that uh, quality and, and age is, is fragile? Absolutely. So she's preparing to move. You think she's going to just toss it in the back of Thomas's truck? No way. What are you going to do? You're going to wrap it in layers of bubble wrap. You're going to say, Eric, more. Go back. Get more. It's the industrials. More. And then perhaps put some blankets around it and then nestle it in a box full of packing peanuts. Because it's so very fragile and so very precious to her. And such is the nature of unity that we have, uh, the unity of mind that we've been called to. And it's a necessary insulation that has to protect it. And what's the insulation that protects that unity, that unity of mind? It's the gentleness of humility. And the world has no concept of this. It occasionally champion the humble in literature and movies. It rarely, if ever, finds a place for them in operational reality and the true preferences of life. Rather, I think it's pretty clear, it's the bombastic, the arrogant that are paraded as, that's the champions of the people, thereby plainly exhibiting the profound difference between the ways of this world and the way of Christ and his church. And to be frank, there's a natural attraction to distance oneself from humility. But know this, if you distance yourself from humility, you're stripping the insulation from the treasure. I don't like all those little bubbles around my vase. I don't, I don't want it wrapped up like that. It, I feel silly doing that. It costs too much. You're stripping it from the insulation, the insulation from the treasure. You've made that which is fragile, vulnerable. And unity of mind is precious and very vulnerable. And I would argue, just like if I was like, oh, that's silly. Let me take all that stuff off there, Maria. You're just going to just, it's fine. It's fine. It's just a short trip. It's not my place, is it? Well, it's not your place to strip humility from our insulating the unity of mind that is fitting for Christ's church. And perhaps if it was your church, then you could design it to your liking, but we tend to call that a cult when you design a church after your liking. So because it's Christ's church, and Christ's church is an institution that is to be governed by unity of mind in the Lord, a fragile, a delicate unity of mind in the Lord, then we must insulate it accordingly with humility of mind, with a mindset that looks through the proper side of the glass past oneself and to others. And that may mean serving with tears and trials. You know, serving like Paul did, or better yet, serving like Jesus did. 
Now here it would be wise to pause and ask, okay, how? You, you give, how? How do we do, how do we insulate in that regard? How do we exercise a proper humility of mind? Well, Paul helps us, doesn't he? By regarding, by counting, by considering one another. Who's one another? Look around, that's one another. Namely, those within the body of Christ as more important than yourselves. And this valuation speaks to, well, who deserves to be heard? Because we like being heard. Well, who, deserves, who deserves to be helped? I want to be helped. Who deserves to be cared for? I, I want to be cared for. Who deserves to be strengthened? Who deserves to be encouraged? Who deserves to be deferred to? Or perhaps we could just express it this way. Who deserves to be loved? Remembering that 1 Corinthians 13 says much, but we have in verse 5, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not puffed up, it does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, don't be confused. This is not a call to disregard all matters of standing and proper relationship. Well, I'm going to evaluate everybody but myself, and then everybody's under-evaluated, re-evaluated, and everybody's confused as to where we all stand. It's not, a, it's not as though we pretend as though all persons are, we're all equal in all ways. We're different. We're very different people. We're not gifted the same. We don't have the same experiences, the same gifting, the same strength, same responsibilities. But rather, what we are called to is to have a mindset that maintains a proper view to God, to self, and to others. That is the proper elevation of others. That is a mindset that is joyful to be made low, that others might be made more of. To serve even while leading. To give of self even when not required. It's as Paul states in Romans 12, giving preference to one another. He states in verses 9 and 10, Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Or it's as Paul states in Romans 15, aiming to please others and not simply ourselves. Verses 1 through 3, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who, who without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his building up, for even Christ did not please himself. So we can plainly see that this others-oriented disposition we have been called to is not one of artificially undervaluing oneself or even others. It's the nature of love and was the nature of Christ who had no superior and yet in love did not view, have a view of pleasing himself. And finally, Paul finishes this portion of the text with one last how. Okay, well, I get that. Now, just one more how. How can we do that? Please help just a little bit more. How ought we to exercise such a humility of mind that regards others over ourselves? Well, it's by not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now here, examples may be our, our best teacher. So I want to consider now having a view to the interest of others over self, um, as it's expressed in Philippians, beyond partnership and beyond broad exhortations. And with this, I want to direct your attention a little further into chapter 2, where we have what I believe, I think it could be one of the saddest portions of the letter, verses 19 to 21, where Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I may also be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely or who would genuinely be concerned about your circumstances, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. Boy, that's a really sad passage. It starts off so we're gonna send Timothy. Well, Timothy is is par excellence, I get that. But it's also because there's nobody else. Now I, I hope, I hope more study makes this passage increasingly clear. We're not there, and, and, and so I, I want to recognize that. And, and perhaps he was speaking to those around him in Rome, and maybe that's the context. Uh, those around him in Rome who would have had little to no direct knowledge or association with the Philippians. Or maybe he's speaking to those who were available, and it's those who are available who are not availing themselves of it. Maybe he wasn't speaking as broadly as it initially sounds. I, I recognize that. We're not there yet. Maybe it won't even clarify when we get there, but there is the potential, though, that it is as broad as it sounds. And I'm not confident that I can speak to that at this time, but what is clear is that Timothy cared for the Philippians like Paul himself cared for the Philippians. That was commendable. And that was a rare matter for Paul. He says, you know what? Nobody liked Timothy cares for you like I do. 
And again, while I cannot speak as confidently about this context as I hope to, I nevertheless welcome it as a caution right now. Because this is a natural disposition that we as individuals and or as a corporate body will drift toward. Don't come into the presumption that like, oh, well, this is, this is going so nicely that it's going to be going nicely next year or in a few years. It's not inevitable. Ever heard of, you know, a few letters written to churches in Revelation? This is, we will drift toward it if, we'll drift away to, uh, from it if we do not stay busy about the hard work at hand. You're just going to have to stay working hard. Well, I've, you know, I've worked hard all my life. and kicking it back. Now, nope, you die working. It's about the hard work at hand. It's because the moment that we stop working hard at it, we're going to drift away from the esteeming of others and toward the esteeming of ourselves and toward a view for our own personal interest over others. That's just, that's our sinful disposition that we are prone to drift toward. And these are problems that grow with time, that naturally grow with time. So whereas affection and mutual care should grow with time, it's not inevitable. And we may well find that, we, that the sacrificial other-oriented love and joy of the past creeps toward the self-oriented consumerism of today, a self-oriented consumerism that makes the unity of mind in the Lord that is indispensable of a local fellowship increasingly fragile. It's already fragile enough. We don't need to introduce compromise. And I've seen and I've heard these very expressions of drifting too many times in various churches. So it's not some like, well, I think this could happen. I've, I've seen it happen. I've heard of it happening. I know you've known it's happened. And one particular incident standing out more than others at this time was that of a person who chose to, to disfellowship from their local church and in parting ways they plainly stated that they effectively had nothing in common with anyone in the church. And that is, well, I have nothing common or nothing in common outside of being a fellow believer. And that was a tragic evaluation because they ultimately had enough by itself. If, if you can say, oh, all I have is Christ. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> we didn't ask you to marry everybody in the church. <laughs> and they plainly viewed that as sufficient to have joined the church. But perhaps even more tragic is that they did not have much and that they did have much more in common than they recognized, to include not only acquaintances and experiences, but even their education and profession too. But I don't think they even realized that because they were never around to even know that. They didn't know one another. They hadn't, they hadn't been that others-oriented disposition to know, to hear, to engage. But there was clearly, I would argue, a view to themselves that weighed quite heavily upon this person, and I hope better for others. Namely, I help better for us. Now, by delightful contrast are two more examples. The first being our dear friend Epaphroditus, which again, I'm advocating, name your child Epaphroditus. It is a lot of letters. It will be hard for a little while, but once they get the hang of it, it's a really good character to be identified with. And why? Well, we have very little about him, but he felt compelled to get back home to Philippi. Why? Because he's a homebody? No, because he was worried about the believers being worried about him. Paul reported to the church in chapter 2, verses 25 to 26, but I regarded it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed. Why? Because you had heard that he was sick. And so you hearing that made him upset because he was worried about you being worried. And then there were the Philippians themselves who Paul testified to as having renewed their attention toward him. And this is what precipitated their most recent experience of serving him while in chains. We see in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've reviewed, revived your thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. They were others-oriented. They were eager to serve. And of course, there are those ladies that we have consistently noted in our study Chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we will give them proper attention in due time, but this much I can assure you of now. If they were faithfully executing a humble, others-oriented pattern of thinking, they would likely... They likely would not have come to their place of needing outside help and being restored. It's a bad place 
when you're struggling to be restored to another, it's a really bad place when we have to intervene as a church to restore you within the fellowship. And I would argue, where, how did it start? Well, it probably started all the way back to where we are. Was there a humble, others-oriented disposition for unity of mind, had a view to others, had a view to, to their esteem, or was it about ourselves? And such difficulties, such challenges remind me of, of even confrontations I've had to work through for myself and in the midst of helping restore others amidst bitter divisions within the church, having to affirm to various parties that a fellow believer in the church is not their enemy, having to persuade another believer, look, that person, that they're not your enemy. Again, having to look at someone in the church, they're not your enemy. That, that's a weird thing to have to do. Very strange. You know, I used to work domestic disputes when people couldn't get their business together and they, you pick up the phone, you call 911. Why, you really, your business is carried over to somebody else. And, okay, secular context, get that. I guess this guy and this gal, they can't get their business together, and that's embarrassing. And to have to tell them, they're, you're, they're not your enemy. Maybe they are, though, I don't know. But this is the church. They're not your enemy. And do you understand how strange that is? How strange it is to have to remind persons in the church, notably persons who have shared fellowship before something introduced a wedge, that this brother, this sister in Christ is not your enemy? But when we're looking at our own interests and it appears that they are not being met, or worse yet, when it appears that our preferences and desires are being assaulted, then these matters become less clear to the offended party. And the distinction between friend and enemy is blurred. And that's tragic. But when we can forfeit selfish ambition and vainglory, embracing another's oriented humility, looking to one another's interest over our own, actions that we might reasonably sum up as loving one another, then we'll find that we've insulated ourselves from these hardships. And better yet, we will also joyfully grow in grace together. And like Paul, labor to see one another's joy and progress in the faith. But it's really hard work. It's much more natural to drift, and in drifting to find friendships fading, frustrations increasing, enemies abounding, and unity of mind in the Lord dissolving. But we have to do better. And I'm so grateful that this isn't a message that I'm having to, to preach because we've had some horrible division in the church. And where, where can I go? I'll go to Philippians. This is a maintenance message that when you walk through the, the Word of God, it insulates and protects us from those moments, or it ought to. So we're going to do better. Now, rapidly shifting gears as we come toward a conclusion here. Some of you, I, I, I want to be careful about overly endorsing Gary Larson because, you know, not everything's endorsable. Nevertheless, probably influenced me in ways that um, I shouldn't express. Gary Larson would uh, draw the Far Side comics uh, for a number of years, single image comic strips. And there's one that stood out to me when I'm studying Philippians chapter 2. You might be thinking, boy, you really need to focus. <laughs> and it was two men, they're marooned on a, a tiny island. And you can do this with cartoons. You can have an island that's basically like five feet in diameter or whatever. And it's basically just large enough for the two of them and the palm trees that they're leaning against. That's it. That's the, that's the whole image. And one turns to the other and simply states, thanks for being my friend, Wayne. You really, you think about the, the fact, well, okay, why, why, is that, why is that funny? Well, what choice did Wayne have? <laughs> and, and think about, do you really want to be on an island that small with an enemy? Now, I hope a few things are plain for you. First, obviously, we're not marooned on a tiny island. Hopefully, you're clear on that. And second, as I've tried to make it very clear to you, we're not the only church around, and we are by no means the only good or healthy church available to you. But maybe, maybe sometimes it would, do, it would be a, just a good practice, a good exercise to pretend like we are, to have the thought process that it has to work or it's all a bust. Because cultivating and maintaining a humble, others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord is hard work, and people are messy and never as interesting or attractive as you are. So do something about it. Pretend like you are stuck on this island and it has to work. Put on humility and work hard to secure the unity befitting all local fellowships. And in such, live worthy of the gospel by way of thinking the same way, fulfilling joy and being like Christ. 
because that is our aim. Fulfilling joy by way of thinking the same way and being like Christ by way of thinking as he thought. And when we do this, we're not simply firing gospel flares off. Again, small little missiles piercing the dark, overwhelming it, but for a moment. Rather, we're feeding a fire that brightens a darkened world, testifying to the sufficiency and power of the gospel, not only to save, but to keep and to finish the work that was started. A work that we share in together as a unified body, a fragile work that's made strong through humility and a view to others over ourselves. And to this end, just as I encourage my friend, I think we got it, but I'm terrified we could lose it. Lord, keep us. And so to that end, let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray that he would indeed keep us. Lord, as I mentioned, I am grateful that we're not walking through a painful season. We're not having to say, go to these two brothers and sisters in Christ or these two persons in this local fellowship and urge them to be restored. They've been faithful. They've walked well, work hard on their behalf to restore them. Remind them that they're not enemies. Remind them of what humility looks like. Remind them what another's oriented disposition. Remind them to be quick to forgive. So grateful that that's not the experience that we're having to walk through. And I realize because of the nature of sin, because of the nature of struggle, and the nature of just life, that we're not immune to that. It, it very well may happen in time. It probably will in some measure. But I pray, Lord, that you would keep us. Um, that we would see these two commands. They're very, very clear. They're very simple. Fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same mind. And, and later, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's, it's very clear. You want us to have a very, a very precise expression of thinking. And how does it work? Well, or how does it flesh itself out? It was very clear. It was a humble, others-oriented unity of mind in the Lord. And so we ask, Lord, would you keep us in that? Would you cultivate that within us? And would you help us to act in what's so simple to, to understand, but so hard to do? And then even accomplishing it, it's hard to keep. Grab hold into it, and then that's when the ride really gets going. So, Lord, would you have mercy that we would be kept, that we would uh, cultivate that humility, others-oriented disposition that's so necessary for this fragile command and expectation that you have for your body. And as such, may we be a testimony to one another that, look, the gospel works. And to others who are looking in, that their, their critiques of, oh, the, those churches are all just a bunch of hypocrites, and they, they, they don't really do it. No, that they would just say, wow, they do something that this, that's foreign to this world. They have a, a, such a humility and a kindness toward one another, and, and there's something attractive to that as well there should be, because we're being like Christ. And so would you be pleased again to, to keep us, to help us, and uh, that we would uh, have an ambition to, to pursue these things and, and the humility to recognize that but by your help will we ever accomplish such things. And so we thank you that even now as we, we finish and close our, our time of uh, formal exposition, we're going to yield our attention to the Lord's Supper and we're going to rem be reminded of have this mind which was also yours in Christ Jesus because we're going to be reminded of what obedience looks like, even obedience to the point of death, death on a cross. And to that end, we especially give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.